0: Perfect. All right, welcome back to the Lindroth Hockey P- Podcast. Today I'm riding solo. Unfortunately, I'll send my be- uh, best wishes to my father. We had some big storms over here in the Midwest, and so he had to miss his flight, but uh, he will be back on uh, this uh, upcoming week. But either way, uh, we are in partnership with the Black and Gold Hockey Production Studio. Today's special episode is sponsored by Locker Token, the up and coming sport crypto company. Today we're excited. To have with a special guest, Pat Caruso. So, Pat, early playing career featured since the OHL, CHL, and WHL before going pro and playing in various leagues such as ECHL, COHL, and several prominent pro leagues overseas until officially retiring in 2002. From there, Pat began his legendary coaching career, most notably with the London Knights, Sue Greyhounds, and San Francisco Bulls, wearing many hats and other teams and leagues as well. We're excited to talk about his career today in wrap up locker token in the sports crypto world. So without further ado, please welcome, Pat. How are you today, sir?
1: Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I bet that sounded like your mother wrote that intro, but uh, we always <laughs> like to do that for our <laughs> game. I
1: really so, that was
0: awesome. Let's yeah, pretty Yes. Cool. <laughs> so let's start from the beginning, Pat. So uh, OHL, CHL, WHL, lots of junior leagues. Um, I noticed in the WHL Prince Albert Raiders, one game play total. So can you kind of give us a little bit of background before getting your coaching career?
1: Yeah, well, okay. You're pulling out some good stories here. So uh, what people don't really know, it's not on the resume there. When I was 16, I went to play in Italy, play pro uh, overseas. Uh, some of the pros that I was skating with, some guys that played in the NHL, guys that played in the American League, they were like, if you're Italian, your parents are Italian, can you get your passport? You can come over now to italy we can get you a job and it was making money imagine back then and so i said yeah i can so i ended up going to italy playing pro in italy uh, in a town called Cavalese, which is near bolzano up in the mountains and uh, i played there for a year and a half and then there was a small town they were paying a lot of pros a lot of money so uh, there was words that the team may fold so i was like i gotta i'm 18 now i gotta get back to junior so I called every team in the league in the Auto 67s. At the time, Brian Kilray was the coach. And uh, he said, if you come back, this is like early December, if you come back, you're going to play for my team. So I did. I came back just basically flew home. I didn't even tell my parents. I didn't even stop in Toronto. I ended up landing in Toronto and getting on the next train to Ottawa. And I played the next night in Belleville. And uh, it was a crazy night. I actually fought Darren McCarty. He played for Detroit Red Wings my first game. So that's how bad I wanted to be on that team. So I ended up playing in Ottawa. And thought this is an unbelievable place, and uh, I was excited. And so I played there that year, and then uh, next year was going to be a big year going to go back to Ottawa and then play and be a 19 year old, have a big year. And then unfortunately, the team in Italy said, We're back and we own your rights, and you got to come back here, or a junior team's got to pay for your release. So I was like, Well, that's crazy. I don't want to go back. I want to play junior now. I think I can play pro. And- so I called every team and Prince Albert was like, We don't need a release. Come on out here, you play for us. So sure enough, I went out there and they had some great players that end up being stars and just after Mike Madano. And um, I played a game there. And after the first game, sure enough, they tracked me down to no, this guy needs a release. So I was like, I can't even play with Prince Albert. What am I gonna do? And then a guy I had played pro with in Italy, um, His name was Rico Rossi. He was going to play in Dallas in this new Central League. And Ron Schwachar, who played in Italy as well, he was the captain of the Philadelphia Flyers. uh, And he just got the head coaching job in Dallas. He's like, this new Central League, it's a pro league. We're going to pay you great. You don't need any relief. Come down here. So I'm in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. I literally took a Greyhound bus. Took me about three days. I met up with Rico Rossi, like, somewhere in Columbus, Ohio. I can't even remember. He picked me up. We went to Dallas. Ended up playing pro in Dallas. And that's kind of the history behind it. So, wow. That's,
0: oh, yeah, that's, like, a crazy. <laughs> yeah, since
1: Auburn. So, yeah, the story's pretty crazy.
0: So, what what made you then um, end up going down the and there's a lot going on during that time, but to do the major junior route versus maybe going the college route or maybe going straight to pro, what made you want to be in the major juniors?
1: You know, at the time, school wasn't really a big thing. You know, we grew up in the time where, you know, you turned 16 and our family were first generation immigrants. It was like, we got to go to work. So it was all about, you know, working, going, make money. And so my family really didn't know anything about hockey. So all of a sudden, now that I had an opportunity to make money playing hockey, you know, we just jumped on it. It was like, this is what we got to do. So that's kind of why. And it's, the major junior route at that time was kind of everyone's dream. And if you could play major junior and play well, then maybe you get an NHL chance. And at that time, there was only 19 NHL teams.
0: So now there's 32. It's a big difference. Yeah. So ECHL, right after the WHL, you joined, what's the story of you getting that first pro contract and what was that like now as you're going pro, you're starting that journey?
1: Yeah, it's uh, super exciting. Kept working hard, kept getting better. And I kept feeling like, you know, my game kept improving, you know, for a guy that was never drafted, uh, you know, never, you know, you're dealing with guys that are first, second round picks and, you know, they're getting every opportunity. That's just the political side of it. It's what I deal with now with all the players and we're explaining, you know, what's going on and why aren't you getting these opportunities. So, um, you know, it wasn't uh, anything you could do about that. So you just had to work hard. And every chance you got, you have to make the best of it. And I just kept progressing, kept trying to get opportunities. Uh, and then it became about, you know, where was the most money you can make? Where's the highest levels? And it wasn't the NHL. And, uh, and that's kind of how what brought me back to Europe after all those years. And then, you know, I was in Europe my, when I got back to Milan there. I think it was in 1994, I think. The, you know, it was an interesting time in the world. The European borders just opened up. All the borders were gone. If you had an EU passport, all of a sudden now EU was one community and we had opportunities that players never had before. And that's why I was able to go play in Germany as a non import. And, you know, so that kind of took what took things off and uh, the rest of my career from there.
0: Well, yeah. And it was very quickly that you went overseas and kind of finished up your entire career over there. Um, what was the biggest decision? Was it money and just better opportunities overseas or? Yeah. You know, at that point we
1: knew. Um, it, Cause you were
0: only in ECHL for that one year. Yeah.
1: Go ahead. It was money. It was money for sure, but there was only 19 teams and then Ottawa and Tampa Bay came in the league to make it 21. And uh, there was an opportunity there with Tampa, you know, we ended up going to Atlanta and their camp and then the ECHL and, just didn't really see the opportunity for for someone like myself, but the opportunity was really good for me in Europe. And uh, you know, it just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. But turned out because and after playing, you know, for a few years in the DL, the money was great, which is the, the German top league. Uh, and it worked out well for me.
0: Yeah, and you were doing pretty well over there too. So what what led to you retiring from playing? Because it was shortly after just a few years when you were overseas.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, you get to an age where you're thinking about uh, what's next. You know, I thought about at that time I wanted to be maybe an agent, go back, maybe go back to school some more, maybe go to law school, maybe do all these things and coach. And and so that's kind of the route I ended up doing. My son was born in 1999 in Germany. And uh, my wife at the time, she didn't really want to travel anymore with the baby. It wasn't like today, you know, with the Internet and FaceTime and all these different things. Man, my first years in Europe, I'm telling you, I used to go to the train station to buy the USA Today just to get the scores from the NHL from two days before. That's You had no way to know, right? It's crazy. Yeah, People don't realize it, right? That's how it was. And we wait at the train station to be three copies of the USA Today with the information was two days old. Like think about how crazy that is today, right? Yeah. So that was life then. And then, and, you know, we were just looking to what's the next step. But I always knew that uh, my life was always hockey and uh, I'm very fortunate that uh, I was able to pursue all the things
0: I did. Well, at least according to what we were reading on your stats pages and everything, it looked like there was a year in between you finally getting that first assistant coaching job with the Wexford Raiders. Is mm-hmm. that true? Was there that brief moment of time there? And What did you do during that whole year? Yeah, that's why I went back to school. And uh, first I had to get my GED. We
1: finished my high school. So I, de- yeah, I got that. And then once I passed that, I took college, law and security. So that was an 18 month course, which I I took. And then I was writing my LSAT to go to law school. And while I was doing that, I got this coaching job with Wexford and stuff. And I started working in the agent business with Gus Vidali, who represented Wayne Gretzky, found Wayne Gretzky, Mary Lemieux, Steve Eisman, Paul Coffey. If you Google Gus, he's the one of the most, he's the reason that agent started in the business. It's unbelievable. And uh Gus, I I was good friends with his nephew, Mark Montanari, so we grew up together, and Gus was like an idol, because I knew he represented Dwayne Gretzky when I was a kid, and so I bumped into Gus at the rink, and he hired me, and I started doing recruiting for him, and I thought, man, do I really need to go to law school and go through the next five, six years? I'm doing it now, and so that's kind of how we expedited everything, and I kept coaching and doing the agent stuff, and then... Um, crazy stories, we're on the crazy stories in 2004, the NHL locked out for the whole season at that time, Gus was representing Danny Heatley Chris Phillips, uh, a few other guys, and Ian Palmer who was the head attorney with Bob Goodnow at the NHLPA, when this finally ended, they bought Ian out they gave him a couple million dollars and all these different things and changes were happening and Ian thought he was going to get in the agent business so he approached Gus, who he had known for years ended up buying the business from Gus he came to me and he's like, we want you to work with me. And I was like, I think I'm just going to continue with my coaching career. And But my assistant coach, John Walters, younger than me, why don't you say John and John will work with you. Anyways, fast forward. That's the Will Sports Group. They've been an agent since 2004. Their first mate, big client was Tyler Sagan. They've got tons of NHL players. So they've done very well. And it all started because of the company that Gus had and Ian took over. So, it's uh, You can see how all, all old I'm getting when I start telling these stories. But yeah, that's almost 20 years ago. So um yeah, so that's uh, that's basically it. So then I kept coaching because my coaching kept progressing. And then fast forward to 2017, I got fired again from coaching. And uh, my agents that represented me when I was playing in Germany was Gary Sago, Brett Calgan, Ron Chipperfield. Ron and Brett both played with the Edmonton Oilers with Wayne. And they started Optimal World Sports, and they wanted to retire. Then they were maybe 68 at that time. And they approached me to take over the company six years ago with Gary, who's still my partner. And my wife was like, you keep getting fired from coaching. You know, this is your thing. You know, why don't you do this? This is what you're meant to do. And so through a little bit of uh, deep soul searching, I ended up... uh, Getting into the agent business, and that's when I took over Open World Sports, partnered with Gary and our, the group we have now. So that's basically the whole story, real quick.
0: <laughs> yeah, interesting. So when you started, te- when you started coaching, excuse me, OJHL, and sometimes, and then at one five, two thousand six, you were with the Toronto Red Wings under sixteen. So during those early years, are you coaching? You were teaching younger kids, and then you get to the, you know, Utah Grizzlies, and then you're going back to Sioux Greyhounds. But then you're in the ECHL, and then other pro leagues. What was the biggest difference, coaching and being in charge of younger kids, prospects moving up in the rankings, still in school, compared to ECHL grown men feeding families? Was there what's the big difference there in coaching those guys?
1: There's a lot, but you'd be surprised how smart these young players are. Um, you know, you teaching them systems, you're working on power play, special teams, you're doing all these things. They pick it up right away. They're unbelievably talented, even at that young age. But I think the biggest thing is you're dealing with the parents, right? The parents are always the, you know, they can make or break kids at that age. You know, you've got, you've all heard crazy stories about parents. You know, I found that the parents that just let the kids play, work so hard on them, let them just love the game. Those are the kids that ended up being the superstars. You know, I remember Steve Stanco's dad, you know, he didn't even know what hockey was really when Steven was a kid. And, you know, Stanco turned out to be this, you know, superstar. But John Tavares, his mother, he was she was the one that took him to all the rinks all the time, you know. You know, and then there's the outlier. Like I coached Sam Gagne and then Dave Gagne, you know, a good friend of mine. We coached together in London. Dave played in the NHL. You know, he wasn't hard on Sam, but he was an unbelievable teacher for Sam. You know, they had the backyard rink. He should taught Sam skills all the time. And guys like Tavares and, oh, geez, there was a list of kids that played, you know, their backyard rinks where Dave was, you know, showing them skills and teaching them stuff. So, you know, there's that aspect too, which is a benefit. And then, you know, you always get the parents that are just a little bit over the top, you know, have expectations that are too high for their kids. And uh, I've never seen any of that ever work out. You know, the kid's got to be the one that wants wants to be the player and put in the time and beg the parents to take them to the rink, you know, every day. That's, that's the ones I see progressing the fastest and having the most success. And of course you need the talent, you know, you have to have, you know, the size always helps the ability, all the, you know, your natural genetic stuff. But, you know, I'm a big believer in that 10,000 hour rule. I don't know if you've read the book, a lot of people have, but there's a lot of truth to that, you know, to, to mastering a craft. So um, that, that's the biggest difference. And then once they get pros, you want to help them progress, but they have a lot of other, factors you know they're married they could have kids the wife could be pregnant family things are happening in life they're you know not happening to a 15 year old kid you know and and so that's that's what you're dealing with a little bit on a a day-to-day basis that's
0: different and i and i assume too that the communication with the kids that young back in that time too early 2000 I was different because my father would want to ask this question uh, with just the communication. We had Mark Strobel, who was the uh, associate coach for University of Wisconsin a few years ago, and uh, he had mentioned that there was no communication on the ice uh, between the players and that. He said, why don't you guys text each other about it just because they're always on the phones <laughs> and that they only communicate in the group chat. So I assume you never had those problems. So now that you kind of look and I don't know if you're really, really involved personally with the kids trying to kind of come in nowadays, you know with the agent stuff you probably are but uh yeah do you notice that big difference i'm sure back in the day you're like man it was way easier to communicate with these kids
1: oh you that i mean that's such a great statement everything we do right now so all the kids we deal with like we're dealing with now is 2002 2001 2000 you know and it's they they just want to text try to get them on the phone i'm like finally I'm like we got to speak like the text message isn't working i need to explain on the phone but I can go back. We also deal with guys that are still playing. They're born in 88, 89, 87, 1990. It's night and day. You know, you pick up the phone, you have a phone call, you have a conversation. So just to see how that everything's changed in certain areas over the course of a decade, 12, 13 years, that window of players, it's unbelievable and unimaginable, you know, just dealing with even a guy born in 95 to 2000, the mentality is so different. It, it is really unique. And uh, I got, I don't even know what it'll be like The kids born in, you know, 2015, 2016 and older or younger, but Holy Mac, it's changing all the time.
0: So uh, I want to fast forward to at least when you were the head coach, GM and president of the San Francisco Bulls, uh, ECHL team at the time. Now um, at this time, I think the CHL and ECHL merged, correct? Was that yes. during that time when you were coaching? Yeah. Okay. So, I assume you still had the same duties as the head coaches and GMs have now. People don't know about the ECHL. You guys wear all the hats. You not only the head coach, but you got to sign all the players and and create your roster too. What was the hardest part about doing that? Being the head coach and constructing the roster, especially when you had the CHL merger, it was easier because you had a lot of people to pick from.
1: Yeah, you know, people don't realize for sure the ECHL coaching, head coach, and GM job is the toughest job in hockey. You know they don't get enough credit you're not only signing contracts you're managing the salary cap you're trading players you're dealing with apartments moving players flight you make a trade you'd be on you know like is my best friend you know you're always moving players guy gets called to the american league you're the one getting in the flight he gets sent down you're getting in the flight middle of the night it's not just coaching when you're in the they you're wearing many hats and you're non-stop you know, so I tell people about that and, and people are like, what? You, you don't have staff to do that? No, they don't have staff to do that. That's not the NHL. The head coach is responsible for everything. Like your, your job is to make sure you have a lineup and the roster on the ice to play that night. So that's the first thing that's very difficult. You're always juggling that. And you're moving money around all the time. I think at the salary cap at the time, it's gone up a little bit now. But let's say it was 13 grand, and it had to be for, you know, 20 players. Well, you know, guy gets called up. Now you got cap space. You maybe reward a guy some more money for one week, and then the guy gets sent down. You got to take it back, and you're always, you know, moving players. You're calling guys in, explaining to them why you're doing that. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on. And then you know, you make some mistakes. You know, you've, you've traded some players that I regretted trading. You know, looking back in hindsight now, um, but that's part of it. You know, you you just you do at the time what you think's right. And coaching the team is the easy part. You know, running practice, putting in systems, running the bench—that's the easy part. Everything else was a tough part. But I also was the president, and we had you know obligations to our holders, to people investing, our staff, you know, our ticket sales, the arena. We were dealing with the state of California at the time; it was a mess. We had the cow palace there. Arnold Schwarzenegger just got kicked out. New guy just came in. Like, like it was a it was a crazy time in California, the state of California. So um we went through a lot it's unfortunate because we we had we had the right vision like we knew the american league was going to move to the west san jose was interested in us being there now of course their team is in san jose but they would have much preferred having a team in san francisco that could generate revenue and more you know populate more you know help the game grow uh, in another city but you know we just with our ownership group and stuff it just didn't work out which was tough that was a tough tough thing to swallow but we learned a lot, met some great people in those few years, and, um, you know, I can't complain about the experience.
0: So the year before that, you were with the Sue Greyhounds as an assistant co- coach. Before you got that gig, did you have any idea what was in store for you? Being the CHL head coach, GM president, everything, did you have any idea?
1: Yeah, it's so a really good question. So you, you got to backtrack now to 2009 with the London Knights, so I'm coaching the London Knights. and. We come off, we recruited, we traded. We had John Tavares, Nazem Kadri, John Carlson. Oh, man, the list goes on. Michael Delzato, Zach Ronaldo, Phil Veroni. The, the, tons of NHL stars, you know, still playing and stars in today's game. And Stanley Cup winners, et cetera, et cetera. Sam Gagne just came and left. Pat Kane had just got drafted first overall to Chicago at the time, the year before. Anyways, good friend of mine. He says, he wants to invite me. He says, we're gonna buy an ECHL team. So we flew out to Vegas in June. He was buying the Las Vegas Wranglers. So we met with the ownership group, the whole nine yards. They shake hands. He's like, You're gonna be my head coach GM in the Las Vegas Wranglers. So I was like, okay, so we like, "You gotta go resign from London and you're gonna take over this team. You're starting here in September. So I'm like, holy geez, okay, this is happening. So he shook my hand, you know, we agreed on a salary, two-year deal, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so now the final thing is for this deal to close. So his lawyers at the time were like, hey, you know, you shouldn't buy this team if you can't extend the lease at Orleans Arena because it makes no sense to pay all this money for the team. Then in two years, when this lease expires, you got nowhere to play. So they tried to renew the lease with Orleans Casino and the it's, it's Boyd Gaming Group. I'll never forget it. And the Boyd Gaming Group is like, we're not going to extend the lease. They're like, we, we want to see where everything's at. And with us, so, anyways, the whole deal fell through because they could not extend this lease. So now I got no job. I had resigned from the London Knights. So I have to say the man that was buying the team was honorable. He said, "I'm going to pay your two-year contract. Go work wherever you want." So my buddy was coaching Utah, and it's Kevin Callie who I coached, and we, you know, grew up with um, with my brothers. And he says, "Come work with me. It'll be amazing." So I had a free pass. So I got in my car from London, drove to Utah. And I drove to Utah, and that's where I coached with Kevin Colley with the Grizzlies. We, we were the farm team for the Islanders, and I uh, got to meet a lot of great people and met my wife when I moved to Utah in 2009. So, you know, today's 2023, 14 years later, we're still together. And uh, so whatever reason the world put me on that map, that's what it was. And then after the Utah year, Kevin was might have left and wasn't sure. There was a lot of things, and the opportunity in Sue came up, and it was a pretty good job. I thought, oh, let's go back to the OHL. So... I ended up going back to the OHL with the plans that I was become the next head coach. That's why Dave, Dave, I uh, oh can't even remember his name right now, but uh, Dave hired me to come in, be the associate coach, we got a young head coach, and I was supposed to take over. Well, while all this was going on, the owner that was paying me was talking about now getting another team. Let's see what we can do. And so over dinner and conversations, and he ended up not even being involved in San Francisco, but he was like, this is how it all started. Through all that, it's how we got into beginning this whole San Francisco Bulls thing while I was in the suit. And so that's how it started. Yeah.
0: Interesting. So then why why go overseas? What made you go there and finish up the, the coaching career over there?
1: So uh, San Francisco folded after all that. And it was tough. It was a tough time because, you know, when and whenever a team shuts down like that, when you're the president, GM, head coach, you know, they're coming to me for answers. And so... It was a tough time, and I don't want to say I ran away, but uh, I played in Milan. The people that I played with were now the owners, and you know they were like, "Come, come here, let the dust settle, and then go back." And man, as soon as I got there, it was the best experience I had ever coaching. The fans were unbelievable. We took a last place team to like the finals. The rinks were sold out every night. they were making pictures of me <laughs> singing all day long. Like it, it was crazy. And then things just got uh, the opportunity just kept coming and. Switzerland came about, uh, in Lugano. We lost the team Canada twice in the Spangler cup. Uh, and just, this, that just took off from there for a couple of years. And then, uh, the Boldano team, you know, that, that was, we built that team, you know, that was a team we built that won the championship, ended up winning the championship after they fired me in December of that year. And, uh, I kept telling the owner, we got the team that's going to win it all. We built it. We were just banged up. We're injured. Once we get healthy, we're going to win. He's like, the fans are going crazy. I got to do something. Our biggest sponsor wants to pull out. So he ended up firing me. He didn't want to, but he, according to him, he didn't want to, but he did. And they, The team, sure enough, got healthy and won the championship. So talk about, you know, it just wasn't meant to be. So, uh yeah, and then the whole thing with Awesome World Sports started that year, and uh, that's the rest is history now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So do you enjoy being a agent now compared to being behind the bench?
1: I do miss it. I just coached my nephew's 2012 team in Chicago at the clash and we won the bronze medal there. It was was the best week ever. I was just there a month ago and I like the passion. I was going crazy with these 10 and 11 year old kids I loved it. The passion was still there. So I think if I can do that, it's going to fill a void every, you know, even if it's once a year coaching the kids. But you do miss it for sure. But on the other side of it now, what I do also love the most, I love building teams. I love saying, okay, this is what we need down the middle. You know, we've got to score so many goals. You know, we need this on defense. If we can have goaltending that can do this, and this is what we can project the save percentage to be. And now I do that for hundreds or dozens of teams in my markets right i'll sit down with the gm what are you looking for okay these are the players i think will fit what you're doing and you know a lot of the teams like bull down one of them i still you know me and the owner talk five times a day and every year he's got 10 11 12 of our players he's just one example uh, but we do that for a lot of teams and so does my partners do the same thing and so that's the passion that we still get to do you know which is great you get to be part of that and follow these players. We follow every game. We see their stats. We see how they're doing. They call us. They text us. We give them advice. Hey, you're not playing well. This is what we think. You're not playing well. Hey, you're playing great. Don't slow down. This is what we see. You keep doing this. Next year, you're going to be able to go here and make this. You know, so uh, having the ability to do that and help these players, it's, uh, it's a real, I guess, a, a dream come true in a way. You know, you get to live,
0: uh, work in something you love, you know, your passion. So what – what is now the biggest difference? So now you were at the one point where you were maybe dealing with agents, dealing with parents and everything. Now you are the guy that, you know, is representing the players and talking to the other teams and coaches and everything. What is the hardest part about being an agent without it, that sounding too broad? Like what is some of the tough things that uh, regular hockey fans wouldn't know?
1: I'll tell you the hardest thing. And, and, and it's, it's funny because it's a real simple answer, but it's the hardest thing. We get these jobs. We get contracts in our hands. So player contract comes in, list of my contracts in my hands. The hardest job is now convincing the player why he needs to take this job. You know, back in the day, if someone approached me and said, here's a contract, go play hockey. I'm signing it before I even, I'm out the door the next second. Nowadays, these kids are not like that. Now it takes explanation. It's got to check all the boxes. Why, X, money, yes. Apartment, yes. City, yes. Family, yes. Opportunity, yes. So if we spend more time not getting the contracts from the team, but actually convincing the player and his family, if there's a family, that this is the right opportunity for you and why. That's the hard part.
0: So we see a lot of – well, not a lot. We've seen some NHL players now, like let's say an example, to Claire representing himself, or mm-hmm. um, you have uh, whoever was that just fired there. Uh, I think it was Tarasenko firing. Tarasenko his agent's getting brand new ones, whoever was. Yeah, so what when those things happen, right, agents have a job and they have a way that they make their money, right? So when is that where you guys start to butt heads, or have you ever butted heads or oh yeah. Seeing that with agents and players and what is it mostly over? Is it over like, dude, you're asking for too much money, I want to stay with my hometown team, or is it like, listen, I'm telling you what's best for you, listen to me. How does that go now?
1: Yeah. Well, you nailed it. It's usually about money. It's when a player thinks he's worth more than the agent is getting him. Right. And sometimes, you know, players, I don't want to say the players are always wrong. Very, very, very rarely. Agents always want to do the best for their player. They always want to get them the most money possible, but sometimes in the environment, in the market, the situation, timing is everything. And sometimes those opportunities aren't there that the player expects. So they blame the agent. You know, and I think that's where the disconnect that happens to us too, you know, and, you know, I don't want to say I see the future, but for a lot of times we've been around it so long, we kind of know that if you don't take this opportunity, sometimes the next one's not going to be around the corner, you know? So that that's where the disconnect is. You know, I can see it with Sanko, Duclair. I, I really think Duclair needs to have someone speaking on his behalf. You just can't speak on your behalf just like someone else can for you. You have to put that trust into somebody else to do that. Uh, so hopefully he, you know, partners with an agent soon, but um, if he hasn't already, I've heard some rumblings, but I don't know for sure. But uh, I think that's a disconnect. It's just when a player expects something, and you know, expectations are the killer, right? If you're not managing expectations, you're going to be in trouble with the player for sure.
0: And so, what's the biggest thing that I get an agent offers a player? How can do clear wouldn't in this example, why would somebody like Duclair need somebody to represent him if he's like, Well, I know my career, I know how I play and everything. Is the agent just really are you guys really good at just being able to communicate with whichever uh coach or uh whoever you're dealing with at whatever level league that you guys are dealing with? Like, how did how does that work? I mean, why why would they yeah. need you guys?
1: Oh man, it's good. They you wouldn't believe the market. So, so let's just take there's 32 teams in the NHL. You're taking all 32 teams. You're in discussions all the time with the GMs. You know players on the other teams, what they're making, why they're making it, why the GM picked them, what they need in the depth chart, who's moving out, who might be moving out. A player, it's impossible for a player to do that. He just doesn't have the the breath to do it. He just can't, right? So you have to have someone working on your behalf. You know, the, the markets are too big. It's not like it's one team. You're talking about a global market in our case where we have Russia, Sweden. Finland, Germany, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Slovakia, UK, Denmark, Norway. I'm missing countries. Like there's like 30 countries, right? How can one player know those markets, right? You have to have someone that knows the markets, knows their GM, has the relationships and has an understanding of where your value is. So um, it's impossible. It really is. I, I mean, I, I I think it's silly that he doesn't have an agent to be honest because you know, who knows what else the value could be. He's not going to be able to get the most unless he's staying in one spot forever and he doesn't care. But, you know, that would be a shame to him and his family, you know.
0: So I know that you're working at various different levels and you've got a bunch of different uh, uh, people that you work with. We see now what's very, very popular. And I think that this is where the times change with the people anymore, my generation compared to the older generation. A lot of players were, were suitcase players. They got trade a lot. It was not a big deal. It was part of the life. They moved. We talked to a bunch of former players about that. Nowadays, at least when you're looking at the NHL level on surface level with the news that we're getting, a lot of no trade, no move clauses. And that's starting to seem like the more valuable component of a contract being signed, obviously, other than the AAB um, that everybody loves to hear about. Is that something you do deal with a lot? A lot of players don't like to be moved and or they like to have control. Like, it seems like a lot of players don't want to go to Canada, I'm not trying to shoot at Canada there, but <laughs> uh, do you deal with that? With at the I don't even know if there are no trade, no move clauses in like ECHL or anything, but do you deal with that? Is it hard to move far or often at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in the National Hockey League, American League, ECHL, trades are getting a little more, you know, they're not as. Prevalent as they used to be I think that uh, you know teams try to build you know some sort of culture uh, so they do they do their homework a lot more during the summer during the off season during free agency to kind of build that culture you're not just flip-flopping your team throughout the year you try to build something keep the guys there and try to create something within your locker room uh, obviously now the trade deadline's a big deal it's a much bigger deal than it was years past because now they know that's the time of year that we can move someone we've got to try to improve Or get rid of money or whatever Europe trades don't really happen uh it's not really a thing If they don't like a player they buy them out we move them we put them on another team but you know there's not really any trades. that doesn't really exist Uh, so that's a different kind of market there um so I think that's the biggest thing that why it's changed you know back in the 80s and 90s trades were happening every week you know you lose a game you're trading two guys and You're going, what's going on? You walk into the rink on a Monday morning after a day off and there's three guys on the block, you know, that kind of thing's gone. And I think money too, the big contracts have also changed that with the salary cap. You know, you can't flip-flop a guy because it probably doesn't fit in someone else's salary cap or, you know, those kind of things. So uh, I think trades are going to be, they're always going to be there, just much less. They're going to be just timed much differently as you've seen over the last few years.
0: So before we get into uh, our favorite part of the interview lightning round questions we do want to end with uh talking about the reason why you're even here today locker token and the sport crypto company and big yes. thank you to them to having you pat to come on the show and speak with us so talk to us a little bit about how you got involved with them and kind of a little bit about the company a little bit about what you do too as an ambassador
1: yeah so Locker Token, we started uh, all because of the players you know a couple of years ago when covid hit we had players all over the world that couldn't get their money out of their banks um, you know, guys were coming back to the US and Canada, they were broke, they had all this money in Europe and Russia and Czechoslovakia and Sweden, and they couldn't get their money. And we thought, man, how are we going to get these players money? And we thought the best thing in the world would be crypto, right? You can be anywhere in the world, you, you can move money instantly. And we thought that's the answer to all our problems. And we're not talking Bitcoin, Ethereum, these volatile cryptos. We were talking USDC, stable coin tied to the US dollar. You know what your money is going to be and let's get the players their money. You know, let's get it into crypto and let's get it to them. So that's kind of how this whole thing started. And then we realized as we learned more about Web3 and, you know, the things that we can do to provide Web3 of these pro teams and make the game better, make the leagues better, have these teams more profitable and engage even more with the fans so the fans have more of a relationship with the players and the teams nothing better than web three, you know, where we can now, you know, we can create digital assets. You own these digital assets, you know, fans can now be involved. You tell them you buy this, you can vote on the starting lineup. You know, you can be involved in picking the player of the game. You can meet the players when you own this NFT and these kind of things. So we've kind of created a whole realm of, of things in web three that we're providing for these teams, uh, controlling the data, you know, now these teams, we can go directly to the fans and sell them NFTs that are tickets to get in the game, VIP, parking, no, no lineups to get a hot dog and a beer. You know, we could do all that now through web three, connecting the fans and the players. And why shouldn't the teams know what's going on? They should know who's sitting in the crowd. They should know the players that are sitting there and the, and who their, their fans really are. And right now, if you're just buying a ticket that got ticked, given to somebody else, no one knows who's there. Right. So, right. Through, through this now, we believe that we're going to create better fan engagement, give teams control of their data, create new revenue streams, and it's real exciting. I think it's real exciting what we're doing. And uh, yeah, I think we're, you know, when we talk about the future of sports, Web3 is definitely part of it.
0: So obviously, you guys have got, check out the website, by the way, plenty of ambassadors as far as current and former pro players, coaches, agents like yourself too, Pat. You also got teams and stuff. I know if you're the IHL fans that are listening, Manchester Storm just signed with them. Um, You also just had a, a major junior team sign with you guys too. You guys are doing big, big things, so is there anything that you can announce on here? Maybe not announce something new, maybe something that a lot of people would like to know about the next big thing that you guys are doing maybe with these teams. I know that you were describing some of the tickets and the interactive things, but there is there any new announcements or new things that people don't know about that you could talk about? I
1: think uh, one of the things I, I'm excited about, and I'm a big live fan person, you know, when you're in the arena and you see something, uh, you know, a live event, you know, you're at the game and your favorite player scores an overtime goal, you're going crazy, you know, the teams now can take that moment in time, mint it immediately, put it up on the jumbotron and say 10 limited edition highlights of this NFT can be bought right now. Now, you think about that from a broader perspective, Perspective, and Okay, hockey, if we're going to do it for hockey, it's exciting. But wait till we scale to other sports. You know, you talk about baseball, guy flips the bat, goes viral, right? That could be an NFT that happened live and you're sitting in the arena or you're at a football game and, you know, football and Patrick Mahomes throws an unbelievable touchdown pass. And that pass now is an NFT that's minted immediately, limited edition. Like, these are invaluable moments in time that, you know, today will be worth X, but what are they going to be worth 10 years from now? You know, or 15 years from now? Uh, When it comes to the OHL, we we just partnered with the Oxford Generals and we're going to announce a bunch of new teams. But the OHL is the biggest, well, the Canadian Hockey League is the biggest breeding ground for the NHL players. Imagine Connor McDavid. You go back six years ago, his first OHL goal. What would that be worth today if that was minted and a guy bought that NFT? Well, that's what we're going to be doing now going forward, right? First round picks this year, those NFTs get minted. You know, it's a collectible dream in the collectible market, you know, the these normal stuff, the hockey cards and baseball cards, it's a billion dollar industry. Well, we're gonna take it to the next step, you know, the next level now, I think, with all this stuff. And I think that's exciting. It really is.
0: Yeah, so for me in lighting round questions, the last question is whoever's listening to this, if they're new and it's a the person they heard token, they want to sign up and get started. What's the best way to do that? Hop on the computer go to the website, an app, or what's the best way?
1: Yeah, for sure. You can download our app. Uh, just go to the Apple Store, or if you're uh, an Android and just type in locker token, our app will come up. Download our app, create your wallet if you don't have one. If you have a wallet, you can import your 12 seed words, your seed phrase, and it's a non custodial wallet. You can communicate with us right in the chat, or you go to our website, lockertoken.io, and we'd love to hear from you. We're just, uh, we think we're going to be the future here.
0: So, Pep, we're going to move on to the very last part. I know that you got stuff to do today, but a couple of fun questions, light round questions, are like popcorn. Quick questions to you. If you got a story, the story is, uh, the, the floor is yours, or if it's just a quick answer that is fine too. So we'll start with the first one. What this going back to your playing career, obviously. What were the worst locker room conditions you've played? Which which arena which place <laughs> well wow, easy i played in ravensburg when it was an outdoor arena our dressing
1: room was a trailer an old trailer and we used to walk about 300 yards to the outdoor rink and we couldn't practice on half the rink when the leaves would fall down on a windy day or it was raining we'd have to stay in just a corner of the rink so that was tough
0: so uh, that was my next question what was the worst ice condition? Yeah, had it that, as well. that
1: was right again, you know, we had, but there was a few other outdoor rinks, but that one stuck out the more, there was one in Cortina, they built the roof now, Cortina, Italy, which was where they had the Olympics, I don't remember what year, but the rink was outdoor, and on rainy days, we'd still, the coach. they still wanted to skate, <laughs> it was tough, it was tough.
0: Off the top of your head, <laughs> three line mates that were some of your favorite to play with. Line mates? Line mates.
1: I think I'd have to go with Hanover Days. Yeah, Hanover Days. So I played with Troy Crowder and Mike Ware, two of the toughest guys I've ever played. I centered them on the fourth line, and it had to be the toughest line hockey ever seen. Troy fought Bob, Bob Probert numerous times. Mike B. Ware fought every heavyweight, and I was centering these two guys, so I did whatever I wanted on the ice. It was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, they were a lot. they were a lot of fun, and I've got to go with you know play with Brian Fogarty. He was one of the. Probably the most talented player outside Wayne Gretzky to come along in our generation. He was a superstar talent. He led the OHL in scoring with 160 points or something as a defenseman. He was unbelievable. What a hockey player he was.
0: Were there any rats in your career? Anybody that just agitating you always had a target on your back, but uh, maybe never fought you just a rat under your skin?
1: (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Nothing that comes to mind. I don't. You know, the game. Everyone was a rat back then. Everyone had to do something. It was uh, it was a hack and whack time. You
0: know. Was Darren McCarthy the toughest guy that you fought? Yeah, I actually wrestled.
1: My I'd say I fought Chris Pronger too, but that was my coach at the time was Brian because It was a wrestling match. You're lucky to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> five, exactly. five, nine, he's he's six, six, so you can imagine.
0: Um toughest goalie to score against or just a goalie that when your team played it was like a nightmare to score against
1: yeah uh no nothing really comes to mind actually you know i i can't really think that's a good one i something i'd have to think about james i really couldn't say buddy
0: craziest uh fan base that you got to play for in your playing career Oh man, there
1: were some crazy ones. Like our, our Hanover fan base, we played for the Scorpions. The rock band rocked me like a hurricane. They were like yeah. at every one of our games. They were our biggest sponsor. We probably did that rink was crazy. Like you felt like the rafters were gonna collapse. It was so loud. They'd be jumping the whole game. It was nuts. It was nuts. That you could feel the vibration sitting on the bench. That's how crazy that rink was. So that I have to go with Hanover there.
0: Yeah, we talked to a lot of players that are playing even now, and we always hear that it's always the, the European leagues and teams that go crazy, but we always hear Germany is one of the craziest, and uh, uh, there's something else near Germany, but we hear that they're always crazy. It's yeah, like yeah, soccer it's games, apparently.
1: It's like soccer games, every one of them. If you Google the, the Curva, they call it, they're on their feet the whole game, singing, playing
0: drums. It's nuts. It's a really fun. It's fun environment. So just to wrap it up not to sound too like a generic question or anything but the first thing that pops in your mind could be playing career coaching career as an agent up to this day but uh what is the most or one of the more fond memories of your hockey career if you could pick one
1: yeah you know I've I've got quite a few uh I think you know when we got to Lugano that was a special time they were in last place they fired their coach historic franchise and uh, we took that team from last place to game six against Burn in the finals. It was unbelievable. But we beat Geneva in the second round. And you won't believe this double overtime, game six at home. I'm running the defenseman. Defenseman gets hauled down. I don't know what he was doing up the ice, anyways. I always say that Philip Fuhrer was his name. He was up the ice on an overtime, and he gets hauled down. Penalty stopped in overtime. He comes to the bench, and we're like, he's the only guy in the world. He scored one goal this year. We don't want Phil to take this penalty shot. And the referee's coming over. He said, he's got to take the penalty shot. And Phil looks up to me and Doug at the time where Coach He goes, I got this. And we're thinking, no, he's going scored a goal in his life. And still got the puck, and he went out there, and he scored, and it was absolutely mayhem. Fans are coming over the glass. I still got pictures there. I'm going crazy on the ice. And I couldn't believe he scored, but he won the series for us, and, yeah, that was that was a hell of a moment. Definitely.
0: That is awesome. Well, Pat, I appreciate you. You know you're busy, man. So thank you for taking time to join us today. And uh, my father says hello as well. He's bummed he couldn't make it. But uh, thank you again for Stay joining
1: Anytime. Love to be back anytime. Thanks, James. Awesome. Okay, buddy. Talk soon.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Guys. All right. Pat Curcio, Great guy. So happy that he was able to uh, take the time to come on the show. Shout out Locker uh, Token as well for making it all happen. They're the sponsor for today's episode. Um, again, we're in product- or we're in uh, partnership with the Black and Gold Hockey Productions. Um, we're going to be back to our regular schedule. I know that uh, it's been a little Um, spotty here and there, but my father's finally back in town. We've got everything set up. So uh, yeah, we're going to be doing probably some more stuff with Locker Token. So keep an eye out. We're doing the sponsorship thing with them and having uh, guests on talking about the sport crypto world. And hopefully that's the next big thing. And uh, keep tuning in. We appreciate everybody tuning in today and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thank you.